So we, two weeks ago, I preached the first half of the book of Jude. And we're going to pick up in an odd place. We're going to pick up in verse uh, 16 in just a few moments here. But I want to kind of review from last week. And I was thinking about this story that I think is applicable just to introduce what we're talking about as we look at the book of Jude. In the year 2010, the U.S. government was able to arrest several people living in the United States illegally from the nation of Russia. They are people who had been living in the United States for years, uh, and they have been living here. They're young people who had gotten married to one another, more out of arrangement by the Russian government, and they had snuck into the country via different ways in which they came in, and then they just started working regular jobs. Uh, one worked for Redfin, for example. They were working, uh, one was working for a media outlet, and they were just going about living their lives, doing nothing illegal, until the Russian government decided would call upon them to activate them into the role of serving as a spy. And it was really, if you look at their lives, it was pretty boring work. It was mainly just like driving somewhere, take a picture, and then go meet somebody and hand off the picture. It wasn't like maybe what you see in the movies uh, with spies that are running for their lives and maybe taking lives and all of that. But in essence, they were called ghost operatives, which sounds really cool. But what they were is they were snuck into the country just to live their life, and when called upon, they would then rise up and commit some sort of act of espionage. And the United States government was able to identify them, arrest them, and I don't know how it all went after that. Some, I think, were just disappeared, um, went out on bail, and others, I don't know. But the point being I have is this. I was thinking about that story when looking back at the book of Jude again, because Jude sits down to write a a letter commending a church uh, on how well they're doing, but then felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to warn them about, as Jude says um, in verse 4, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. There are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. As I said two weeks ago, I am, I've always been less concerned about the atheistic or liberal attacks on the Christian church because we're usually pretty good at seeing those coming, right? If an atheist um, were to declare to themselves, I disagree with those Christians because I don't believe there's a God. As Christians, you kind of go, well, that's an easy one. I see him. We're not going to let him speak in our church. That's probably, probably a good idea. Where sometimes we in the Christian community fall prey to false teachers is our trust of those who sound like they agree with us, who then suddenly surprise us with something that we feel like this might not sound right. But yet it's that guy, and I love that guy, but it doesn't sound right. But he must know more than me, so he must be right. And the list is very long of famous Christian leaders who have had hard falls from the faith, not just morally, but even theologically. Um, normally, I don't name names, and, um, but I'm not the pastor, so no, just kidding, I went to, to, to Matt. Uh, but... But one of the famous stories, and the author of the book wouldn't mind saying saying this to you because he's made it very public, but I remember back in the day when I was younger, we had this very famous book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. I don't know if you remember remember that book or not, Um, but the author of that book disavowed his faith a few years ago. Um, Says he was totally wrong in the book. His faith is, he doesn't believe in his faith anymore, Um, but when you listen to him tell the story, it's obvious that the public pressure of holding a stance as the Bible being true and marriage being between a man and a woman, and that took its toll on him to the point where he decided, I must be wrong in what I've always believed, and the Bible must be wrong because this many people disagree with it, and it just became an easier way. We know famous apologists who lived secret lives for decades. We have very famous Christian music artists that have suddenly changed their viewpoints over the last 15, 20 to 30 years. And it's very disheartening. But it causes in all of us this conundrum in our minds and in our hearts of, are we, are we right? Is this right? Because these people that I think very highly of suddenly don't believe what they've said they've always believed. What does that mean? And the wonderful news about like the letter of Jude is he's addressing this, first of all. Jude is addressing this. Brother of Jesus or half-brother of Jesus is addressing this issue that's been around since the beginning of the church. So when you study history, 
which I'm a history geek, and you study scripture, you start to realize that there's really not a lot new under the sun. Maybe the modes by which our messages come to us are new, right? Jude, James, Peter, they didn't have to worry about social media and everybody having the internet in their pocket. Um, But they had to worry about the same issues we worry about today, which is, in Jude's case, people slipping into a congregation, then being placed in a position to teach or lead, and the church is wrestling with, uh, what's going on here? Are they right or are they not right? And uh, do we follow them or do we not follow them? And Jude gives us several warnings. We'll pick up on those warnings today. And then the wonderful thing is, is like all the other books of the Bible, they don't just leave you with the doom and gloom message. They don't just say, watch out for these guys. Okay, now you're on your own. Figure out how to deal with it. It's not how the Bible operates. Jude gives us a plan as he wraps his letter. He gives this church advice on how to handle the conundrum that they are in. The tough thing about most biblical advice is it's not easy because the battle that we are in is not an easy one. The life that we are living is one that is set up to be contrary. In fact, I listened many years ago, this is probably at least 13, 14 years ago, to Francis Chan speak at a conference in which he pointed out that every book of the New Testament other than 1 Timothy promises Christians persecution. But yet, as believers, we're surprised when it happens. But I think the Holy Spirit's saying, why why are you so surprised? I've made it very clear that following Christ is going to mean difficulties. And so, Jude's going to tell us this isn't going to be easy, but here's what you need to do. So, if you haven't opened already, please open to the book of Jude. And I am going to take a moment just to read the whole thing through again, all whopping 25 verses. It is kind of long, I know. But I do believe, especially if you were not here two weeks ago, you should hear the whole book before we pick up in a very odd place to pick up, which is going to be, actually we're picking up in verse 11, which starts off with, woe to them. So that's a bad place to start, especially if you weren't here two weeks ago. So you need to hear who the them is and why woe is the term used to describe them, okay? Starting in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept For Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality, and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion, They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander what they do not understand, and the very things they do not understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. There are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. There are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame. Wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, Remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. 
They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word reveals to us the state of the world around us, reveals to us the heart of man without you, reveals to us the state of man with you, and gives us a guide in how to live in a way that honors and glorifies you. Lord, I pray as we unpack the second half of Jude's letter that you help us know what you want us to know from it and understand how we can apply it to our lives. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to freely gather together and study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So this week we're picking up, like I said, in verse 11, which starts with, woe to them. The them is the list of people that we see uh, laid out before verse 11. And more so like the types of people. But in essence, Jude is identifying someone or some people in this church that have entered into this church secretly. And they might have been even naive to what their intention was when they first arrived there. But as they started grappling with the faith, they got to a point where they were placed, it seems, into a position of authority, or at least in a position to teach, in which they were using and taking advantage of that position to teach doctrine that was not correct and likely for their own benefit, and likely leading to some sort of sin. The examples used so far all kind of revolve around sexual sin. We were dealing with examples like Sodom and Gomorrah, for example, but additionally, there seems to be a level here of someone who is able to profit personally from their false teaching. And the best way for a teacher to profit personally is to give a message that the audience likes. Right? If you are someone, my wife and I like to go to a lot of concerts for a lot of different acts that we enjoy. And one of the things is, I will not spend money on a ticket to go to a concert of a band I do not like. That makes no sense. Okay? I like comedians, clean comedians, and I'm not going to go pay money for a comedian that I really don't like. People aren't going to pay a speaker, especially in this time and, and age. They're not going to give something to a, a teacher to profit from if they don't like the message. And that's why I'm sometimes wary of, and I appreciated um, Matt last week putting up the, was it Pastors and Sneakers? I don't know what the, what the official site was. But it makes me really twitchy when there's someone who's that popular. What are they preaching that isn't in line with the Bible? And it might be. It might be. There's very popular teachers that teach in line with the Bible. But they're usually also getting heavy scorn from the non-Christian community for their message. But we have to watch carefully. And again, some popular authors and some popular speakers are very, are very good at what they do. And they bring people to the Lord. I think of Billy Graham as an example of that. Okay. But we have to always make sure we're like the Bereans who were checking in on Paul. That the message Paul was giving when he was t teaching in Berea, that if Paul's going to be fact-checked by the audience, we should probably fact-check. You should fact-check everything I say today. You should go home and say, wait a minute, is, that sounded weird. Is that accurate or not? And maybe I found something that you've never seen before. Or... Did I embellish something? And you're going, A, that's not okay. And we can approach those things with love, but if they don't change, then that changes a little bit. Still with love, but maybe a little harder. But our job is to hold first and foremost Scripture. So Jude uses these examples, and then he says, Woe to them in verse 11. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's heir. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. So if you look at the examples here in verse 11, what Jude is doing is saying those people who are speaking about things they don't understand, that's the example of Michael contending with the devil over Moses' body, which you won't find in Scripture. You'll find that in the Assumption of Moses, 
And we talked a little bit about last week about where should or shouldn't you use that as a valid source. I shouldn't say last week, two weeks ago. Okay. But these people that have perverted the gospel or speak about things they do not know or do not understand, they're looking at the same type of future that Cain, Balaam, and Korah face. Now, maybe you know those stories or maybe you don't. I'm assuming everybody knows the story of Cain, right, which we see back in Genesis 4, verses 3 through 8. Cain and his brother's name was Abel. Very good, okay? Abel was a shepherd. Okay, Cain was a farmer. Cain brought some of his first fruits of the soil as a sacrifice. Abel brought fat portions from some of his firstborn of the flock. God rejected Cain's offering and accepted Abel's. Now, it's interesting when you read Genesis chapter 4, you don't really get a clear understanding of exactly why. You're left to kind of assume the reasons. But John offers us in 1 John chapter 3, and you can go ahead and flip there. It's not very far away from Jude. So 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. John gives us some insight. Where he writes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. And I'll start with 11 just to give you context. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. That's not as complicated as maybe you might think. God knew the heart of Abel and knew the heart of Cain. Now, when you look at the story in Genesis chapter 4, God actually gave Cain a second chance to do the right thing. Right? He tells Cain that sin is crouching at your door, but you must master it. So what does Cain do? Does he do the hard work of saying, you're right, and he, and he follows the Lord instead of giving into temptation. He, re, he doesn't resist the temptation. Instead, he takes the easy way. He gives in to his jealousy, gives in to his anger, and he kills Abel. He did not have love, but he was bringing his sacrifice just out of obligation. Balaam we can't really read this story because it's pretty long when it's Numbers chapter 22 through 24. So if you're taking notes and you just want to know where do you find this. And it's in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. And it's a very interesting story because this is an area, this is a story in the Bible where a donkey speaks. And I'll let you read the action of the story. But in essence, Balaam is someone that, um, I'll just give you a recap of the story. The Israelites are camped along the Jordan River across from Jericho in the plains of Moab. Israel had already wiped out the Amorites, and there were a lot of Israelites, and they were camped at the doorstep of Moab, making the Moabites very nervous. The Moabite king Balak called for a prophet named Balaam to come and to curse the Israelite nation in hopes of weakening them and driving them out of the land. The Lord goes to Balaam and says, don't do it. So Balaam goes to Balak and says, not going to do it. Balak says, I'll pay you lots of money. I will reward you richly if you go do this. Balaam goes, okay. So off he goes to curse Israel. Now here's the thing. When you read scripture, God gets what God wants whenever God wants it. Okay? Think about those things. What does he tell Jonah? Go to Nineveh. Jonah's like, nope, I'm going this way. As if he's going to somehow outsmart God. And God's like, that was cute. You're going to get vomited up now. And you're still going to go there. Okay, that was cute. If not read the Bible, that's not in the Bible. That was me just throwing my own little spin to grab your attention. But in essence, well, he's going to go there anyway, just covered in whale spit. Okay, how does Saul become Paul in the New Testament? He was off murdering Christians, right? He was arresting Christians, hauling them to jail. And he's on his way to Damascus, and the Lord knocks him to the ground, makes him blind, and says, you're going to come follow me and do this. He's like, okay. So Balaam thinks, I'm going to go get paid. I'm going to go curse the Israelites. God has literally told him, don't do it. But now he's going to go do it. And so, I don't know if it's comedic or not. I chuckle a little bit because it does have a talking donkey in the story. But as Balaam is going on his way, an angel provides a roadblock for Balaam's donkey. And three times Balaam gets off the donkey and beats the donkey And the angel gives the donkey the ability to speak, 
and he basically says, what have I ever done to you? And then the angel appears to Balaam and communicates God's unhappiness of Balaam's trip and allows Balaam's trip to continue. But in essence, when Balaam gets there, you know what he does? He blesses Israel three times, almost like against his will, which makes Balak very angry. But here's the point in why Jude brings it up. Okay, Cain is someone who his heart was there for obligation, and then in essence, he was disobedient, lackadaisical, and vengeful. And these false teachers, the way that Cain murdered his brother, false teachers can, in essence, contribute to the murdering of a soul. Balaam, prophet for hire. Give me money, I will say what you want me to say. Speaker, preacher, teacher, publisher for hire. One of the things, and this doesn't have a horrible ending, just as I, years ago, I wrote a, tried to write a novel. I, I finished it, went to a couple writing conferences, enjoyed it, met some editors, met some, met some agents, and my excuse for not seeing it all the way through is we had another child and decided I was too busy to, to refine the manuscript. But the point being is that one of the conferences I met, it, it's interesting because at these Christian fiction conferences, you have a disproportionate number of female authors. Like, lots. Prairie romances were all the rage at the time. Uh, if you want to know about a, somebody living on the frontier, the prairie, maybe a pilgrim even, and her love saga, we had lots of those in Christian bookstores at the time. Murder mysteries, spy novels, things like that, not so many. So when you go to these conferences, like, all the male authors find each other and like, hey, it's a guy, hey, it's another guy, and then you all go out to, like, dinner together because it's just like, what's going on here? I mean, not that it's bad, it's just like, I can't talk prairie romance, um, not my language or interest in what I read. Um, but it so happened that one of the authors I got to go to dinner with actually already had a New York Times bestseller with a very, very popular book um, called Dinner with a Perfect Stranger. Probably shouldn't have said that, but I don't know that this is going to get that widely distributed. As we were visiting, he had a follow-up that he had already published that was coming out, but he was ready to move on to write some other things he has inspiration and ideas for. And the, the, the book is amazing. We used to give it away to visitors at Grace Baptist because it's a really good allegorical story about Jesus and his love and who he is. And so this author is a believer. He's not a false teacher. One of his frustrations was he had a contract with the publishing company to write a third book in the series. And he didn't really feel like he wanted to write the third book anymore because he had moved on to some other things that were inspiring him. But there is a Christian business industry out there that is going to want material and to promote that material and put it out there. How many of you read the Left Behind series? Raise your hand. I think we got in our library. Okay. You know how many books that series was supposed to be originally? Three. How many did it turn into? It was like, I've got them all in a box in my garage. I mean, that's just because I don't have any room in my, it's not like because I'm like, I don't like them. I just don't have a space for them in my house. There's so many of them, okay? It's because the publishers get involved and say, this is selling like hotcakes. Slow down. Draw the story out. We need to make more money. And that's what was eye-opening to me at a, at a writer's conference for Christians is how much it really was a business. When you meet with editors and agents, you just want to get your book published, you have a message in there, you want people to see and hear and all this, and they're interested in promotion, social media, and money, and it's a business. But when we used to have Christian bookstores, how many of you were walking into Christian bookstores and you'd see like famous preacher had a board game on the shelf, and you're like, your best life now, board game. You're like, how does that work? there is an industry within Christianity that in many ways serves a very good purpose, right? Some of the material that we use, somebody has published it for us to be able to see, and I think people who put their time and energy into creating it should get paid for their work. The problem becomes when we move these Christian workers into celebrity status, and they have to maintain that status, and then when that status is, they're trying to maintain that status, the bigger you get, the more scrutiny comes upon you. And when you publicize or speak about some of those biblical standards that we hold to that are contrary to what culture believes is okay, because we live in that age that Isaiah warned, right? Where good will be declared evil and evil will be declared good. So if you're really teaching this, you're going to bring all heaps of criticism on you. And that's when people, some people recognize it as an opportunity to make money, Others who have been moved into that recognize to keep their platform, they have to water down their message or even change it. And that's why we, as believers, taking these things in, have to be very discerning as to what they are. But that's the, the, what Balaam falls into is he's going to get paid to curse Israel, but instead he blesses them three times and gets in trouble with his 
with the king. And 2 Peter 2, 15 through 16 gives another explanation of that. We won't read it now because I've already taken half the sermon time to talk about one verse. So, yeah. So, if you look at Korah, the other story about Korah is in Numbers 16. He was a Levite who felt it was his right and privilege to be priest over the Hebrew people. He brought 250 leaders of Israel with him to oppose Moses' leadership in an attempt at a coup. If you want to know how hard leadership is, read Moses' story. Whoo, how, wow. That's just like one problem after another. So leadership is not always the, the glory of being the leader. It's the consistent migraine of leading people. And that's Moses. There's a coup attempt. And revolting against Moses, Korah was revolting against God himself as he chose Moses to lead. And Moses offers a dare. And it's kind of a strange dare. And again, you can see this in Numbers chapter 16, 28 through 30. And Moses says, look, if all of you who are challenging me today, if you all die of a natural death that men experience, then God did not obviously appoint me. But if God will bring about something totally new and the earth will swallow up the rebels and take them to their graves, then you know that I am the one that God has selected to lead. Now, that's a really specific dare, right? So if I'm standing there's one of the 250, I'm like, I need to move. This is not going to go well because that's really oddly specific. And by the time he's done speaking, the ground opens up and those who were challenging his leadership got swallowed up by the earth. So when you look at this, how seriously does God take false teaching? How seriously does God take those who challenge his authority? How seriously does God take those who lead God's people astray? Those are not nice examples at all. Now, what is the danger in them? Verse 12, and we will move quicker than this to the end. I promise you, you won't, you'll be home by the 130 NFL football game this afternoon with lunch before that even. Okay, these people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. There are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. There are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. And that's going to wrap up the expose that Jude offers about the false teachers. And remember, we talked about two weeks ago, Jude intended for this, for this letter to be circulated beyond the church that receives it. If you look back at the very beginning, he says, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Well, that's every believer everywhere. That's why it ended up in our scriptures. So it's a warning for all of us to understand. Now, in verse 12, these people are blemishes at your love feasts. Now, the blemished word can also be translated as rock or reef. And so there is this analogy here of underwater rock or reef that you cannot see, but what does it do to your boat if you hit it? A few years ago, my, my, my oldest Elijah and I, uh, we thought it would be like a three-hour canoe ride, and it was significantly longer. Well, we hopped into the Willamette in our canoe down at Willamette Mission and decided we'd paddle it, ride it, ride the non-existent current of the Willamette up to Newburgh. Whew. and it was sunny, not a cloud in the sky, and hot. But every once in a while, and that river is pretty easy, too easy, because it was just, if you stopped paddling, you weren't moving. So we paddled for six hours with several breaks in between, because our shoulders were like, ah, and we were beat red. So it was an adventure um, that we made it through, and we can laugh about it now at the time. We're like, where's the nearest landing that your mom can come pick us up? Uh, but Every once in a while, in our aluminum canoe, we'd hear a big clank, bang, boom, and we're like, what is that? And you look over the edge, and there's a, a rock or a tree or some branches sticking up. And there's some harrowing moments there, not knowing the river very well, that I thought, we're going to go down. Now, we got our life vests on, and we'll paddle over to the, the, in, in shame, call for help. But not knowing what was there we could have easily lampooned ourselves. And that's the analogy here, which is these teachers and this kind of false teaching is just hidden under the surface, but it can wreck or lampoon the entire church or the mission of the church. And he goes on to give examples. And I'll just 
go through them very quickly, but in essence, the commonality, the common thread between the clouds and the fruitless trees and the wild waves, they're all, and the wandering stars, they're all useless. They're useless, right? Now, now for us, we might say, I love a cloudy day in the summer because it brings me shade. Well, if you're living in a mainly agricultural society and you have a cloudy day, what do you want from those clouds? Rain. There's no point in that cloud if it's not giving me rain for what I need for sustenance and my economy. If it's going to be, if it's going to be cloudy, it might as well rain. Okay? And as you go through that, the autumn trees, again, agricultural society, not too high there on, they're not too happy about just an ornamental tree that looks pretty. They need that tree to serve its function. If that tree does not have fruit, it's not worth its existence. They need it to survive. And then more kind of seafaring examples with the waves at, at sea or the wandering stars. And if you're navigating a boat at night and the stars are moving on you, how good does that do or how well does that help you get to your destination? We're following the North Star, which just went to the east. Is that normal? That's the point. Almost a comedic example of this is what you're supposed to be following and it's moving all the time. That's not our scripture. Notice the very beginning of Jude. He does say that to contend for the faith that once and for all was entrusted to God's people. That means that what we have at Jude's time is all we need for life and godliness. I believe Peter says that. So there is no new revelation on scripture that comes after it. Just bank that away when you hear somebody that might knock on your door and say, well, the Lord gave us a new revelation. Or might say, well, the scripture was corrupted and we have the correct translation. That's not accurate. Jude himself, Paul in Galatians says, if you hear a new gospel contrary to what I've already preached to you, let it be accursed. So we already have the map that we need. We have the tree that bears fruit. We have clouds that give us rain right here in our hands. Now, I want to address this before moving into the good news as we do the, the, the rest of the sermon. But there's this odd verse about Enoch. This is another one of those things. This is why people usually don't preach Jude unless they're not thinking it through and deciding to do that. Which is, this is the third example you have in Jude in which you have to really do some exploring to figure out what is he talking about here. Because Enoch is in Scripture. He's the seventh from Adam. You'll see him in Genesis. He is one that did not die, apparently, because he lived such a righteous life. But we have no actual writings from Enoch. And in fact, when you look at this, this, this book that they're quoting from, you can find it, but it was written. Um, let me find the exact date so I can give it to you accurately. Um, it was written around 100 B.C. So it's pseudepigraphal. In other words, it was written by somebody, then they put Enoch's name on it. Now, because it's included here, it doesn't mean suddenly it was inspired and she'd be part of the canon and thrown into our scriptures. What it means is Jude is using an example that the audience would be very familiar with. Okay, I've used a couple of illustrations here to try to make my point today. In his letter, he's referring to something that is actually accurate scripturally when you look at the quote. Okay, what, what he's quoting there does fit with other Bible verses about God's coming and his judgment, and the holy ones likely being angels. There's other verses that talk about the Matthew 13, for example, refers to that, that, that when, when Jesus comes, he's bringing his angels with him. We have other verses where the saints come with him. We have examples of saints being judges. Jesus Christ is judge. Angels assist in judging. So the quote itself does not disagree with Scripture. Now, the book of First Enoch, we would not consider in its entirety to be canon, to be something that should be in Scripture. But Jude uses it, we think, primarily in the same way pastors today would use an example. Or Paul uses an idol or a statue in Athens when he gets there, right? If you see the story of, of Paul in Athens, he stands by a statue to an unknown god, and he goes, Hey, I see the statue to an unknown god. Let me fill in the gap for you. I'll tell you about the known god. So that's why he uses it. But don't miss the point of why he uses it, is to point out the type of judgment that is coming on those who are false teachers. Now, we've talked about that for a sermon and a half now, the false teachers. Let's talk about the good news, like what is the survival strategy? And that's verses 17 through 23, and then a beautiful doxology at the end. But what Jude here says, verse 17, but dear friends, and notice that the tension between love and affection in the tone of the letter 
and some hard truths. And today, sometimes I feel like we can't seem to mix both. Either somebody is so loving and friendly that we're afraid in being loving and friendly to speak the hard truths, or we're so harsh with the truths we lose our loving tone. It should be both and, because if we love each other, we trust each other to speak the truth and honesty to one another, even if it doesn't sit well sometimes. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere instincts and do not have the Spirit. So in other words, they've warned us, this is coming. This is a relevant warning for us today. We will be scoffed at. It will happen. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up, and here's the plan right here, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. We have six things there. Now I know at this point, if I'm in the audience and the speaker goes, we have six points that we see here in the audience, I'm going, what time is it? Is he going to go through six points? These are really quick points that are really the easy but thorough plan on how to persevere. First of all, on our own, we can't do any of these, right? Because look at the beautiful doxology. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. So he is the one that will keep us from stumbling. Our part of the deal is, I'm asking you to do these things, and I will help you do these things, which will embolden you to keep you from falling. Right? There's always this component of I can help my children by giving them advice and I can be their safety net, but at some point they have to follow the advice that I've given them. So, dear friends, build yourselves up in the most holy faith. How do we build ourselves up in, our, in the faith? Well, the first and foremost thing that we cannot ever grow lazy with is reading the Bible. It's like total church answer you've heard since you were old enough to read. Mom and dad have told you, read the Bible. But do we do that? Because what I find sometimes is I'm often sometimes more interested in the book about the Bible than I am about the Bible itself. There's, there's millions of books, and many of them very, very good, that have helped me. I used books in preparing for this study, but they don't trump my time reading the Bible itself. If you have not been someone who has typically just read through the Bible, talk to one of the elders of this church. They'll be happy to help you know where to start and how to go about doing that. But we need to spend time scripture reading, listening to sound teaching, and being in a fellowship with other believers to sh where iron sharpens iron. The best defense is a good offense. By Denver Broncos, believe it or not, beat the Kansas City Chiefs a couple weeks ago. Last week. I was stunned. Because the Broncos have been horrible and the Chiefs are the Chiefs. You know how they beat the Chiefs? Now, if you suddenly want to participate in that question, that's, um, I don't. But the point being is this. They didn't give Patrick Mahomes the ball. They held on to the ball and kept slowly moving down the field with good offense. So their defense did not have to try to stop Patrick Mahomes for four quarters. He had the ball in a very limited amount of time. Point being is, sometimes we focus so much on defending ourselves that really what we should be doing is pouring into our playbook to be on offense, to be proactively following Christ. What's the second thing he says? Praying in the Holy Spirit. Okay, not just pray at dinner time, but are we spending time individually and collectively with people around us praying? One of my favorite things about my job at, my, at the school I work at is every morning as a staff, we get together and pray together. We pray by name for our students, for our teachers, for one another every single day as we start the day. So it's a different prayer every day but it's with the hearts and souls of the people that we lead and we work with in mind. But we pray in the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 26 through 27, John 14, 14, 1 John 5, 15 through 16, the Holy Spirit guides our prayers. Do we ask for guidance from the Holy Spirit as we go about praying? Do we pray to be able to understand His Word? Do we pray to be able to stand strong under temptation for perseverance, when we're persecuted. Then we're told, verse 21, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of the Lord, excuse me, Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. We persevere. We stay obedient to God, which is hard. The Holy Spirit's going to prompt us, 
The Holy Spirit's going to convict us of sin, but the Holy Spirit's not literally going to move your hand or your foot or your mind away from what you shouldn't be doing. He gives us all the tools. He gives us the prodding. But our habits are what is going to make us successful or not in warding off sin. One of the things that's interesting, and this is from a sermon I heard years ago, but when you look at 1 John, I love the book of 1 John, but it speaks to us about eternal security. But it speaks to us not necessarily about feeling eternally secure. I believe that once you are saved, you are always saved. I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He rose again. If you believe in him, you're his child. You are sealed with him for eternity. That does not mean God will let you feel secure in your sin. Growing up, if I was caught in a bad habit or doing something I should not be doing, my mom or my dad's responsibility does make me very uncomfortable with doing something contrary to what God would want me to do. Would we all agree on that? But sometimes we start feeling very twitchy about our own faith. Maybe I'm not saved. And usually when we feel like maybe we're not saved, it's because we're identifying in our own mind a certain sin, action, attitude, or activity that we're involved in. Now, does that mean that if you have confessed to believe in Jesus and he has genuinely saved you, that he's going to suddenly unsave you? No. What I think it does mean is the Holy Spirit saying, I'm not going to let you feel secure in that sin. I'm going to draw you back to me. Now, as believers, we remind one another that you are eternally secure and you are loved. But we also point to all the verses that talk about as a true believer, you don't just keep on sinning and saying, woo I'm saved because Jesus did this so I can do whatever I want. That's not genuine faith. But we strive to keep ourselves in God's love, i.e. to keep ourselves in God's blessing. He loves us no matter what. But we have far less self-caused stress when we are obedient. John 15, 9 through 11 tells us that he tells us these things so that our joy be, may be made complete. And sometimes we, are, we know we're saved, we know we're loved, but we're not experiencing joy because we're not living obedient lives. We're feeling insecure because our lives are filled with turmoil based on not outside forces, but decisions that we are making. I think about all the times as a pastor and working with married couples who are struggling mightily with one another. And almost every time when I would meet with a married couple that was struggling, it was their spouse's fault. And they don't like hearing, I've yet to meet a marriage where it isn't both people bear some responsibility in some way. Now, I know in some of you that might just hit kind of funny because I don't know your situation. Most of you don't know very well. Okay? And it does not excuse if somebody in the marriage has done something very egregious toward the other. But in the general sense of doing marital counseling, usually you can identify something in each person. Maybe one does carry way more responsibility than the other, but the reason they're finding a lack of satisfaction in their marriage is because the other person's doing this, 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 this. And if only they would stop doing this, 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 and this, then we'd have joy. We'd be happy. And so sometimes we lack our joy in our lives and in our faith because we are consistently dabbling over here contrary to what God's will is, then we wonder why we can't feel joyful. God doesn't work on a karma system, but there is just a natural set of consequences that comes with not being obedient. Then, what else do we do? Here's the proactive, really proactive step. When we stop worrying about ourselves and start worrying more about others, we actually, I think, experience more joy. And we're, when we're busy following Christ, we're too busy chasing him to get caught up in sinful habits. So what do we do? We do be merciful with those who doubt. Now that might seem kind of different because I'm giving you this whole week and a half, two weeks sermons about watching out for false teachers and not, being, not tolerating it. This is not talking about the person who is leading others astray. This is talking about the person in the flock or in the congregation who has doubts. Doubts are a normal, natural thing. And so we need to be merciful with those who doubt. Which means you are open to people asking questions. It's a safe place to ask those questions that we then provide the answers to. We don't let them wallow in their doubt and say, oh, you know, everybody might be right about that. Who knows? No, they've asked a question. Let's try to give them an answer. But we be patient with them. 
Because the Bible says so isn't really an adequate answer to a lot of young people when they have questions. We have to be able to go further and explain what the Bible says, why do we believe it's correct, and how does that live out tangibly in our lives in a good way? But we're merciful, not scared, when someone someone expresses doubt. What's the outward, what does it end up looking like? You end up saving others by snatching them from the fire. God is sovereign and, and he works out our salvation with us. And, and Matt talked about that a few weeks ago. But one of the things that is very clear scripturally is God in his sovereignty has decided that he has chosen to use us to be the vessels to give his message of salvation to others. Can he operate like he did with Saul? When he turned him into Paul? Yes. But it's very clear scripturally, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Acts 1, 8, that there's an expectation upon us to make it known as to why we have hope and joy. And to make it known why we are able to be saved. Which means saved from what? Death and sin. Which means we have to be willing to point out the fact that there is sin. But what we're doing is being a blessed vessel. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, it says in Romans chapter 10. To be able to provide the opportunity for others to find saving faith in Jesus Christ. In essence, their eternal destiny is changed. Their eternal life is changed by answering those doubts, providing them with the answers, providing the opportunity to come to faith in Christ. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. And this is a warning to all of those who have the best of intentions to come alongside someone trapped in sin that we need to be merciful, loving, and be willing to help, but to be very careful that in our effort to help, we don't get ourselves ensnared in the same sin as the person we're trying to help. It's very easy to have that happen. So the warning here to this church and to all Christians everywhere is, show mercy, but don't be naive. Be careful in your efforts to help you don't find yourself suddenly wrapped in the same sin that, some, that you're trying to help someone get out of, which is why I always preach safety in numbers. Right? A, if you're by yourself caught in a habitual sin, it's very unlikely you're going to get out of that. But you need to come to someone else who believes in Jesus and ask them for help, and they need to be merciful and trustworthy and patient and loving. And it might take also them pulling in somebody else that's trustworthy, loving, and faithful to work together so that they don't get wrapped up in whatever they need to help you get out of. Does that make sense? Here's the last thing I want to point out to you, and we'll read the doxology to conclude. In essence, I'll give you the easy answer for a church in general. In my opinion an easy answer for a church in general and how not to get caught up in what Jude is warning this church about. Churches must galvanize first and foremost around the gospel. Churches that galvanize around anything else other than the gospel of Jesus Christ will run the risk of running astray. Okay, we're coming up on election season. Watch. Watch the candidates that try to court our vote by trying to convince us that they're the, the candidate for the church or the candidate for Christianity. But listen carefully how they use Scripture if they use Scripture. Explore carefully what they've done in their past in their position of leadership as someone who is now courting the Christian vote. Because over the last number of years, I've seen churches completely fracture over politics. Why? Because the church wants to galvanize around a political party or political candidate, and if the church won't do that, then the church fractures. It's not the role of the church. The church is to galvanize around the gospel of Jesus Christ. It might be a, mission, it might be a, a social issue, and that becomes that church's primary social issue. Nope. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the gospel of Jesus Christ will help you interpret the social issue. It'll help you use a lens for that political candidate. But it has to, first and foremost be around the gospel, not the popular teaching or preacher or book or issue of the day 
or world event, but around the gospel. And if the people in that church are, are galvanized around the gospel and doing these things that Jude ends his letter with, it will not stray and it will draw more people to Christ. Persecution will increase. And what you look at is where persecution increases, guess what also seems to grow around the world? Faith, the church. Two weeks ago I said the place where the church is growing the most, South America, Africa, Southeast Asia. The place where it's declining the most, the place that has the most freedom. America, Europe, Australia. Very secular continents and countries. I'd prefer that the Lord not have to create a persecution in America for us to, like, take him seriously. But it might be coming if that's what it takes because God's not going to let us grow comfortable. He is going to draw us to himself by whatever means necessary. I'd rather we take the advice given to us ahead of time and use that freedom to draw more people to Christ than have to be forced by God to do that in a way that will be much more unpleasant. I don't want to end on a kaboom. I want to end with these beautiful words because we can do this because if you believe in Jesus, he is the one that's going to keep you from stumbling. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you are the one that has declared us righteous, that your righteous blood became sin so that we might be called the righteousness of God. And I'll tell you, Lord, I don't feel righteous. But you have made me righteous. You are the one, Lord, who when you look at me, see me forgiven, rescued. It's why you died on the cross and it's why you rose again. So that Satan holds no power, no authority. Anything he does, you allow him to do for now. When his day is coming, his days are numbered. And Lord, as Peter warns us that you are tarrying to return so that more might come to faith in you, let us take that call seriously to make you known in our little communities and beyond. Lord, call us to be missionaries right where we work, or maybe call some people here to be missionaries halfway across the world. Lord, let us be open and listening to what you want us to do and how we can be obedient to you. Let us hold firmly to your word. Let us be merciful with those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire, Lord. Let us be careful as we help people and love people to love you more and love you most. Thank you for your eternal, steadfast love for us and your, res your rescuing of our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.